Well, I would like to say good morning. It is uh, wonderful to be here. Uh, so it was kind of a, a weird week. Um, Doug and I were going to preach this morning. I was going to talk about the past, and he was going to talk about the future for our reunion celebration. And everything got changed in the middle of the week. And so uh, on Friday, I was starting to, I just really wrote a, a different sermon uh, for today because I wanted to save that other one because the other one was really good. And, uh, and this one's uh, just, uh, you know, whatever. But I will say that uh, without having had a chance to talk to Troy about the music selection and the worship, um, the Holy Spirit selected those songs this morning. Uh, that, was, uh, that was beautiful. So uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Dwayne Cross, and I was the uh, pastor here at Hope uh, from 2000 to 2015. Uh, when I retired, uh, very unsuccessfully, and uh, I worked for the, I've been working for the conference for the last six years, uh, doing transition churches and uh, some mentoring of young pastors and things like that. But uh, right now, I'm uh, Sherry and I are unencumbered, uh, and uh, so we are. Uh, Doug has been asking me for years to come back here, and so we said yes. But I wanted to clarify what that means. Uh, last Sunday, someone asked me, he said, well, are you back as a pastor? And uh, my answer to them was no. And let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, you have uh, two outstanding pastors, uh, Doug and Jim, and they're doing a great job. And uh, Sherry and I are here as uh, members, as uh, lay people, as servants, and to do whatever we can to extend the kingdom here at Hope Covenant Church. So just so that you know, that's, that's uh, why we're here. Um, and I'll, we'll do anything we can to help serve the church and serve the kingdom. But I uh, just wanted you to know that uh, as uh, we're going forward. So let's, uh, let's just have a word of prayer before we begin. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to talk to you about something that's uh, very personal. By the way, welcome to those who are looking, uh, listening online, Facebook Live, later YouTube, if you listen that way. But uh, we welcome you to our service once again. But I would like to talk to you this morning about something very personal. Now, several years ago, um, we actually printed out some bumper stickers that said, it's personal. Now, Anybody remember that? I know, Stacy, you guys still have one because you never wash your van or your car. <laughs> you still have one on your car. Uh, but uh, we had one on our van for years, and it finally, the sun just melted it off, you know. But uh, it said it's personal, and then it gave our website. And people used to ask, well, what does that mean, it's personal, right? Does that mean we can't come because we're not part of the team or the group? No. Well, let me tell you what we meant by that and what we wanted to share when people would ask the question. What we mean by that is this, that our relationship with Jesus, our relationship with our Heavenly Father, with the Holy Spirit, is very, very personal. We take that personally, and we take our growth in Christ personally. So we meant that by that. We also meant that our relationship with others, uh, with the body of Christ, and with those who are pre-Christian, those who are yet to come to Christ throughout the world, we take our, our relationship with them and with you very personally. So that's what we wanted to, uh, people to ask, what does it mean? And we wanted to tell them that, that that's what that means. So 
Uh, this morning, I want to talk to you about uh, that very beautiful thing. Our relationship with God is very personal. Now, when you read the Bible and take it seriously, some things emerge that kind of capture your attention. One is that you can know God. <laughs> you can know God, the creator and king of the universe. You can know him personally. It's not some uh, Old Testament you know, radio voice from heaven coming down and speaking to us. It's God came down to earth and became part of us, and he is in us. So this is not some esoteric, fourth-dimensional, netherworld kind of thing. But it's personal and intimate. Like Paul said in Colossians 1.27, Christ in me, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So it is a very personal, intimate relationship with God. Now, another theme that emerges when we look at the Bible and take it, uh, take it seriously is we have a responsibility to other people on this planet to live in community, to live in peace, to serve one another, and most importantly, to love one another. Jesus made this very clear when he gave the disciples his marching orders in John chapter 13. Listen to these words. So now I am giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I've loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. What Jesus said was that the world is watching. The world is watching you. The world is watching me to see how we love each other, whether you're red or blue, right? And to see how we love the world outside of us, especially those who are our enemies. The world is watching. And it is our responsibility to love all people with the same kind of love that God gave to us when he allowed his son to die on the cross for our sins. See, the greatest command, this is the greatest commandment. It's called the greatest commandment. What that means is that there is nothing in the Bible more important than this. No other ideas or rules or commandments or doctrines or teachings, all of those things are subservient to this idea of loving God and loving each other. And so with that in mind, I would like you to understand and to believe from God's word what it means to have a personal relationship with God. You and I are called upon by the Lord of the universe to accept personal responsibility for our relationship with God and others. My relationship with God, it's personal. So I'd like to look at a passage of scripture that some of you are very familiar with, uh, 1 John chapter 4. Now we're just going to read a few verses, uh, four verses, chapter, verses 7 through 10, but uh, I'm going to extend some of my comments uh, through 5.3. The section includes uh, 1 John 4, 7 through chapter 5, verse 3. That's the section that uh, we find together. But I'm just going to read those four verses, verses 7 through 10. Uh, this is the word of God for the people of God at Hope Covenant Church. Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son 
as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God initiates love. Now, this idea of God as love is so simple and yet so poignant. He is driven by his own love for us so that he has pursued us and was willing to pay an enormous price, the life of his own son, to win us, to save us, to reconcile us, to redeem us. The chapter before chapter 4, chapter 3, verse 1, behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. Do you really recognize what an amazing thing this? Behold what manner, what kind, what weird old kind of thing in the world is it that God could love us that way? Behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. Now, if that verse sounds familiar to you, it should. Because in the 15 years I was here, I dedicated over 160 babies and toddlers. And each time I did, some of you remember, like Simba, what did I do? I raised up the child, right? Behold what manner of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. And of course, we all looked at the baby and we said, yes, that I wish I could pick up you. I'm not going to pick up Bruce, but I wish I could pick up you and just raise you and say, do you realize that you are loved like this? It's amazing. Amazing. What John is saying is that to you and to me is that you have no idea of the enormity, the depth, the width, the length, the breadth, the strength of my love for you. That second song, Troy, I didn't recognize the song that the words, the one that started with uh, joy, um, it was beautiful. What was the name of that song? It was why nothing, nothing is like your love. That's it. That, uh, a great, nothing is like your love. Nothing is like your love. This glorious message, the good news, is that if we have, and it takes courage, if we have the courage to open our hearts and to step in and receive what theologian Frederick Buchner calls the furious love of God, it will change our lives. When, see, the Bible doesn't say behave on the Lord Jesus Christ. It says believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and believe how much he loves you. And when you do, it, it radically changes the way you live your life. When you feel this, the enormity of this love, this overwhelmingness of his love, that's what God wants us to feel, to believe, to know, to understand. The furious love of God. Now that will change us, and that is very personal. Can you lean into that kind of love? That overwhelming love? In our text, John talks about this love and speaks of distinct ways that we're transformed by this love. The first thing is this it really changes who you are. His love changes who you are. Now, talk about something that's personal. It changes who you are. Now, this speaks of a change in our identity, right? Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. You who were once far away, so far away you couldn't even see God, 
Once you were so far away, and now somehow, some way, you are near. Now, you know the story in Luke 15 of the prodigal son. Uh, we've all heard that story many times. But just imagine the son who's been far away. And we don't know how long, but it was probably a couple of years at least. The son who's been far away, and then he decides, okay, I'm done eating you know, pig food. I'm going back and see if I can be a servant to my father. So he starts coming back. And when he's coming down the road to his parental home, his father's on the porch looking. <laughs> Has he been looking for two years? I don't know. But he's looking. And as soon as the father sees that son, as soon as he's close enough to see who it is, the father jumps off the porch, runs to his son, and the Bible literally says that he couldn't stop kissing his head. Braces him. You see, as soon as you take that one little step towards God, that you, in fact, as soon as you start thinking about taking a step towards God, he rushes towards you. Why? Because of this overwhelming love he has for you. You used to be far away, but now you are near. This wall of hostility has been broken down. And because of this overwhelming love, our relationship with God, our identity is brand new. We are no longer hidden. We are no longer living in shifting shadows. We are no longer unseen or unknown. You are loved and you matter to him. Now, another, there's another story in Luke chapter 7, and it's a beautiful story. We won't take time to read the whole thing, but you can read it uh, this afternoon. Uh, so at the end of the chapter, uh, Jesus has this interaction with Pharisees. So a Pharisee uh, asked Jesus to come to, uh, to dinner. And, uh, and now he, he, he didn't ask the other disciples, just tried to cut Jesus out of the herd, right? Get him alone. And, and so Jesus said, okay, I'll come over. And there was a bunch of Pharisees there, right? So they're going to they're gonna just hog time or do whatever. So they're having this, this, this dinner. And it's probably outside in a courtyard. That's the only way the story makes sense. And all of a sudden, this, what the Bible calls a sinful woman, a, a prostitute, probably a high-end prostitute because they, she had that little alabaster jar and the perfume was very expensive. So this high-end prostitute comes in and she bends down by Jesus and she starts weeping and her tears fall on his feet and she puts this myrrh on his feet and she starts wiping it up with her hair and the Pharisees are absolutely amazed and aghast and what is she doing here? And Jesus tells them this story. But the most beautiful part of the story is what, and, and I can just imagine this happening, Jesus putting his hands around this woman's face and lifting her face up to his. Maybe the first time in her life a man's ever looked at her like this. And he said, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And then a moment later he says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That love that Jesus had for this unlikely character changed her life. Do you think she was a different person from then on? Do you think she had a different outlook on life? Do you think she looked at herself differently from that point on? Your life changes. Your identity changes when you experience this furious love of God. Well, not only does it change our identity, it changes how we live. How we live. Now we live with joy and, and we live with peace and, and, and we live 
in a way because our destiny has been settled, okay? We're no longer wondering, oh, I wonder if I'm going to go to heaven. I don't do, Have I done enough? Have I done enough? You know, when, when you've really over, overwhelmed by this love of Jesus, you recognize that your destiny has been settled. So that's a done deal, which means no more fear. Most people fear death because they fear what's on the other side of death. In fact, in 1 John 4, 18, such love has no fear because perfect love, what? Expels all fear. It just throws it away. We're no longer motivated by fear. No longer motivated by trying to avoid punishment. Anybody know how that feels? I know, Mark, I know how that feels, right? Anybody know how that feels? Because children might know this, uh, to be compliant and eager to please out of fear sometimes, to get punished or in a timeout chair in my day to get spanked, you know, the old school that worked pretty well. I'm not going to say that too loud, you know, but uh, I remember my, my dad was a huge man and uh, when I got spanked, I, I knew I was spanked. And I, and I remember I loved my dad and my dad loved me, but I, a lot of my behavior was motivated by fear, motivated by that big slab of a hand or his belt, you know, on my rear. And that's why God gave you extra padding here, by the way. So just, just, just say it. And I, so I was motivated many times by fear. So I would be, I was a very compliant, good kid. You know, I did most things well, at least things that people saw on the outside, right? And I was motivated by that fear. But, uh, but when you've been pursued by the furious love of God, when you feel called or drawn into or covered by and nurtured by and transformed by this kind of love, it changes why you obey, right? So when I was in high school, um, my sophomore year, I had two teachers that I remember very distinctly. One was my English teacher, Mr. Tibby, who was also one of the varsity football coaches. And the other teacher I remember was Mr. White, my history teacher. Now, Mr. Tibby, I wanted to excel in his class because I wanted to be a good student, but I was really motiva- motivated by fear. Fear that he wouldn't notice me or that he wouldn't call me up to varsity. I was just a sophomore. Or that he wouldn't like me or somehow it would affect me. And I was constantly trying to please him in the classroom and on the football field because I was afraid of what he might do to me or not do to me. But Mr. White, he wrote a letter home to my parents. My mom used to show me this handwritten letter he mailed to them. If those of you don't know what mail is, okay, <laughs> oh, never mind. And he mailed it to my parents and said, what a good student I was and a nice kid I was. And, like that. and um, how do you think I did in history? <laughs> I was motivated by love. And it changed the way I lived my life. Not fear. Not afraid of hell or being squished by God but by the embracing, pursuing love of God. That's what motivates us to serve and to obey. Brendan Manning, in the, in the Ragamuffin Gospel, was doing research on a book uh, that he was going to write um, around uh, slaves in the Deep South about 150 years ago. And uh, he noticed that uh, these people, when he read all the literature, they did not use the phrase born again. Uh, so these Negro slaves, uh, they had a, Many of them, most of them had this strong relationship with Jesus because that's all they had, right? And it was very real and very powerful, but they didn't use the phrase born again. They didn't understand it or something. 
But what he did discover is they used a different phrase to talk about what the transforming love of Jesus looked like in your life. When you gave yourself to Jesus, this is what it looked like. To be seized by the power of a great affection. I want that, right? You want that? Be seized by the power of a great affection. There's not a lot of people in our world today that really have experienced that to recognize that God's initiative and the explosive nature of his love transforms us to be seized by the power of a great affection. So different. If I'm afraid that I'll somehow mess up or slip up or not behave and God will punish me or I am so aware of God's enormous love for me that I just can't help but love him. It's a completely different way to live, to be seized by the power of a great affection. It gives new meaning to the old proverb, the old Russian proverb, that those who have the disease called Jesus will never be cured. I want that disease. Because when you open your heart to and step in and receive the furious love of God, it changes who you are. It changes how you live, no longer with fear. And it, thirdly, it changes how you live and why you obey. 1 John 5, 3, listen to this word. Loving God means keeping his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Not burdensome. His yoke is easy. You know that phrase in Galatians, his yoke is easy? What that means is that it's well-fitting. The yoke is well-fitting so it doesn't bother the oxen. It is well-fitting. It is just right. His commandments are not burdensome. Usually we think of commandments as do's and don'ts, but there are, things, there are things that we simply do for love, right? Not out of fear, but for love. Same behavior, different motivations. The things we do for love. I, I've been married for 51 years. And almost all of them to this No, all of them to this woman. <laughs> I did get my head there. And, and let, me, let me tell you some things that you do for love, okay? Shakespeare. Indian food. Tea parties. Hallmark Christmas movies. Lord save us uh, from Hallmark Christmas movies. Mamma Mia, The Sound of Music. All of these things we do for love. To stay up all night with a sick child, it's the kind of thing you do for love. My, uh, one, uh, I, was, uh, I graduated from seminary in 1978, and then you're ordained a year after that. And so in 1979 in Colorado Springs, uh, Colorado, um, Sherry and I and the kids went back to Colorado for my ordination service at the annual meeting in June of 79. Well, my mom and dad were going to come drive out there and be with us. And, uh, but my, about a week before, my mom fell and broke her kneecap, and she was hospitalized. And so my dad said, well, I'm not going if you can't go, you know. And she said, well, you should go. He said, no, no, no. So the day before the ordination service, my dad, my mom said to my dad, you better go. Just get in the car and go. So my dad called his dad, Grandpa Cross, and uh, they got in their car and they drove all night to Colorado and they showed up at my ordination service. See, it's the kind of thing you do for love. It's not the kind of thing you do because you're afraid of something or you want to be obedient. It's the, the kind of thing you do for love is what we've done for, what, 18 years uh, with the Navajo Nation? The kind of thing that you do for love is like the affordable Christmas. 
The kind of thing you do for love is, we used to have a woman in our church, some of you remember her, Carol Greenlaw. She and her daughters, who had all experienced homelessness, on Christmas morning, there were sometimes 75, 80 people here on Christmas morning at 5 a.m. building lunches and then taking to the homeless people on Christmas morning. It's the kind of thing you do for love. It's not the kind of thing you do because of fear or because of shame or because of anything else. It's what you do for love. And when you recognize and when you press into and when you accept the furious love of God in your life, all it makes you want to do is say, Lord, how can I serve you? Because a Christian who can be anybody, because a Christian can, you know, by definition, right? In the Bible, it's only used twice and it, it's not a very complimentary phrase, but now a Christian can be an American or a Westerner or a Republican or a Democrat or somebody that believes in God or somebody that believes in Jesus. It can be any of those things. But disciple is what Jesus, is the word he used all the time. A disciple is somebody who says all the time one thing. What's that, Mrs. Cross? Yes. yes. Before you even ask me, God, what you want me to do? The answer is yes. Yes, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's what I do. I, the answer is yes. And that's what we do because of our, the enormous love that God has for us. He loves us. And he died for us. Listen to this verse in verse 16 of our text. We know how much God loves us. And we have put our trust in his love. This kind of love comes on strong. It's easier to uh, just have a casual relationship with Jesus. Uh, it's something that's kind of light and breezy, something that happens on Sunday mornings about 10 o'clock or so, right? It's easy to have an arrangement with God. You feel better by doing something, and, and, and that's good. But that passion stuff, leave, leave that for someone else. Uh, that feels too demanding. So many young people in our world today... Uh, and in fact, half of the couples that get married in our world today, in the United States, uh, live together for a certain amount of time before they get married. That, that didn't happen 50 years ago, but it happens a lot today. And sometimes when I, when I do premarital counseling, I just did one a year ago or so, uh, I talk to these kids and, say, you know, what is it that keeps you from getting married now? Well, we want to make sure that we're compatible. Uh, you know, we don't. And what they're really afraid of is commitment. And they're afraid of what happened to their mom and dad. That their mom and dad got divorced, right? And they're afraid of this and that and the other. And, and, and there's fear. And but listen, let me tell you something right now. Jesus does not want a kiss on the cheek or a walk in the park. He wants you. All of you. He doesn't want to live with you. He wants to be married to you. He wants that kind of commitment, that kind of passion, that kind of real that's what he wants for you. And that kind of love comes on strong. It might be easier to be religious, but this passion, hymn writer Isaac Watts says, love so amazing, so divine, demands what? My soul, my life, my all. I'm not sure I want that kind of love, right? That comes on so strong. It's like a hurricane we sing in the song. What do I do with that? Now, let me explain it this way. Maybe this will help. Consider this, the word of God uh, employs a wide range of metaphors to describe our relationship with God in Christ. And we put these metaphors in ascending order. There's a noticeable and powerful progression in the intensity of our relationship. 
Now, all of these describe our relationship to some level. And as I go through these, I think there's six of them, as I go through these, oh, yeah, yeah, I live there sometimes. That, I, I know that relationship with God. Okay, so let's look at them. The first one is the potter and the clay. Now, in this one, you don't do anything. You're just a lump, right? You say, God, I can't do this. Have, have your way with me. Mold me. You know, but, but, but when you're lumpish, you have no free will, you know, you have no desire. You, you just sit there. You know, that's the potter in the clay. But after that, the next level would be something like uh, he is the shepherd and we are the sheep, right? Now, this is up a notch in the food chain. Uh, it's not very complimentary of us. Sheep are neither graceful or intelligent. They're many times weak and lost. And, but yet the shepherd loves the sheep, and that, that's good. We, we live in that one sometimes, don't we? But the one I live in probably the most that I shouldn't that I live in the most is is the master and the servant. I respond to this one. It's my upbringing. Be obedient. Do the right thing. The church told me when I was a little boy and make sure you, you know, obey all the commandments, which, man, if I could get seven right, I'd be okay. And, uh, but I respond to this one yeah, because I live in this a lot. I, I don't mind being a servant. I, I want the Lord to say when I finish my life, well done, my good and faithful servant. Um, this gets me into the house, doesn't it, Right? Um, it's it's not being a lifeless piece of clay or a dumb animal. I'm in the house. I'm here. But my role is clear. Um, I'm not upstairs, right? I'm downstairs, Downton Abbey people. And and I don't go upstairs unless something extraordinary happens. That's where I belong. I obey my orders. I keep the list. I act nicely. I don't want to get fired. And every time I understand that I'm supposed to clean the house and when I leave, don't forget to lock the door because you don't live there. Now, now in this ladder of metaphors, that one, I think we all live in that one somewhat, but the next one, this is where John's epistle kicks in. Beyond clay and sheep and servants, <laughs> we are his children and he is our Abba. Galatians 4, 6. Abba. Daddy. Now, this is a completely different kind of relationship. This is very personal. Because now I belong in the house. I sit at the table. Love is not something that clay, a clay and potter share. Nor does the sheep really know the heart of the shepherd, though the shepherd may give fruit and blessing to the sheep. And the master may like you and pat you on the head and give you a day off, but all that master really owes you is a paycheck. But a son, a daughter, I matter to God. I have access. I I belong to him. But it ascends even higher than that. Now I call you my friend. Jesus said this to his disciples. Can you imagine what they felt when he said that? Now, friendship levels the playing field. Now I'm taking my place alongside the eternal. Unlike a parent and child, here here I get to literally partner with the Holy Spirit in helping to bring one more person to Jesus. Man, you're my friend. But the highest and the deepest and the most exhilarating metaphor for our relationship with God is when Jesus said that We are the bride, and he is the groom. That's what he wants. He doesn't want this kind of friendship thing, my pal Jesus. That's that's okay at certain times, but 
He wants to be married to you. He wants that lifelong commitment. He wants that passion and that intimacy and that joy and that love that he can only bring. And you have to ask yourself, what kind of love is that? What kind of love is that? And what does that kind of love demand? In Ephesians 1, Paul lets us in on a little secret. He said, we've been more than noticed. We've been pursued. Farther than space and longer than time because God had you in his heart before the foundation of the world and that is why he came for us to be with us not just as a clay with the potter or a sheep with the shepherd or servant with a master or even a child with a parent or a friend with a peer, but he has called us to be with him as his bride, as his, his, he's the groom. What kind of love is that? He wants this deeply intimate relationship with you. How did he provide for this? Well, when we were far away like the prodigal son, disobedient, and deserving of death. He stole away from heaven in the darkness of night, became a baby, grew to be a man, and then became sin for us. God's son died that we might live. What kind of love is this? This is the furious love of God. He wants you. He wants your laughter. He wants your fears. He wants your tears. He wants your joy. He wants everything. This kind of love is very personal. It's very intimate. It's not religion. That's not religion at all. But it's a deeply personal relationship. It's not a contract, but a communion of heart and soul. Your relationship with God, it's personal. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Father, um, in these moments, as we respond to this word, we know what you want from us. You love us so much. You have done so much to show us how much we are loved that you just want that love in return. And to be honest, Lord, sometimes it's kind of frightening. That furious love of God really comes on strong and it, it seems like I can't even respond to it. It's so great and so big. Thank you, Father, that you have made this available to us. And now, Lord, I just would give like us to have just a quiet moment, a moment just to consider what this means, to consider what it means to experience and to invite this kind of love into our lives. Because it does change you. So, Father, in the quietness of this moment, I invite these wonderful people to open their hearts to your spirit and to hear what you have to say to them. We love you, Father. 
we do. May we embrace this enormous love that you have for us. May we stop living in fear, stop living in shame, stop living in guilt, and just receive this love and live in it. It will change our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.